Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. We would like to get into some listener feedback this season, so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything even tangentially related to the podcast, you can send an email to Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S, at tracknerds.com, or hit me up on Twitter, where my handle is, at tracknerds. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Okay, this is a movie that you and I have talked about for years, and one that I think when I was first kind of talking to you about, probably before you had ever seen it, and actually I kind of remember this more from you talking about me talking about it, but the idea that it transcends movies in a way that's almost even kind of hard to rank, that it's more of like this important emotional experience than it is... I mean, it is a good film. It is a very solid film. It was nominated mm-hmm. for three Oscars. But as far as the impact it has on you, yeah, it just is like this soul-draining, frustrating, and uh. for sure, yeah. The first time, the first time that I saw this, it was it was uh, it was on your recommendation. It was probably two thousand seven or two thousand eight. Yeah, it's it's a movie that showed me you know, as a young kid, like just starting to basically watch and appreciate movies like this for the first time, like exactly how emotionally impactful a movie can be. And I didn't really plan to probably watch it ever again, um, just because it is, you know, same. It is like uh It's exhausting in a way that's yeah. not insulting. I don't I, I don't mean that as a as a slide on the film. It's just it's a lot to put yourself through and I think what I said before, too, is so, I don't know, I, I, I've always been fairly stoic, and even kind of now, it's it's mostly movies are the things that can tear me up more than real-life events, because I'm kind of weird like that. Mm-hmm. So, the, I always remember the first movie that made me cry and tear up or whatever was Life is Beautiful from 1998, but then I always remember saying when this film came out, I cried more during Hotel Rwanda than in every other movie up to that point combined. Because mm-hmm. I was the first time I watched this, like usually when I say I cry during the movie, it's like I get a tear rolling down. And now I kind of see it as like a point of pride where like I like that a movie can get me to the point where I actually have like a tear rolling down uh, down my cheek. Mm-hmm. This film, the first time I watched it, I think I actually started sobbing. And I don't really I don't know if that that might be still unprecedented or unparalleled in any of any movies I've watched. Right. Actually, like, sobbed. and it's it's not like. So when you when you watch a movie like Life is Beautiful, obviously you have like that whole that there's several parts of that movie, but specifically the very end when like the kid's looking for his dad and the tank shows up. Oh yeah, like, that's the part. That's the first time I ever cried in a movie. Was that that's moment. the part? Yeah, <laughs> that bitch. Yes, in this movie, there's like there's like a dozen of those. <sighs> right. Um. So just to give a little bit of the background here, you talk about like history of Rwanda. Yeah. And so I, I won't go back uh, as crazy far as I kind of was with some others. But basically, like we saw with several other of these African countries, you get. Europe coming in and messing with things. So what's interesting yeah. is, and so I kind of actually misunderstood, I think, part of what they mentioned in, in the film. They kind of mentioned that there wasn't really a Hutu-Tutsi split until the Europeans invented that split. That's that, actually not That's correct. not true. Yeah. Correct. That's Yeah. So what basically, that wasn't a, a split that already existed, but they weren't necessarily, necessarily diametrically opposed as enemies until the Europeans. So essentially, right. it was kind of like the nobles and the peasants is a very r- rough right. way to looking at it. Yeah, they basically have no. There's like 
very few differences. Like they're super similar culturally, genetically. They there was no real difference. But then they got colonized. I think first by the Germans. Yeah, eighteen eighty five. You have German East Africa. Yeah, it was part of German East Africa. Then after World War One, they split up German East Africa, and it became Rwanda Burundi, and was under the control of the Belgians. And the Belgians after World War One were the ones who were like just super hardcore went after the racial stuff as far as like skull measuring and nose measuring and your height and your skin color. Like they went hard into the racial stuff. And then they were the ones who actually printed the ID cards that you see in the movie where, you know, you were either stamped a Hutu or a Tutsi. And then, you know, like, like they say in the movie that the Tutsis are the ones who are the, they're the nobles. Um, they're, they're minority, but that's because they're like the very, the top, I guess you would say they're, they were the ones who were uh, got preferential treatment from the Europeans. Right, they got preferential treatment, and they were the they were the puppets of their European colonizers. Um, and then the Hutus were everybody else, the common folk, the peasants, you know, the rest of the country. Right. So, and then after 1961, they did declare independence and overwhelmingly set themselves up as a republic. But then in 1973, there was a military coup. And then you just kind of had, you know, a couple decades of this often violent tension between the Hutu and the Tutsi. Moreover, actually, in Burundi, that then started mm-hmm. spilling over into right. Rwanda. Well, because there was a, before this conflict that we see in the movie, there was a civil war, a genocide in Burundi that got like a quarter of a million people killed. And so that was one of the reasons why in Rwanda then it was so hard for those two groups to start to try and reconcile because it was like, well, yeah, we tried that in Burundi and it started like, and we're still bitter over that because your ethnic group was killing my ethnic group type thing. Right, right. So it, it's it's a very Israel-Palestine kind of, we just they just can't get along. Although there, there's a religious difference. Here, it's like, it's only this kind of artificial difference that right. was it was literally a stamp on a card and they even show that in the movie with joaquin phoenix saying what what are you are you who dear who to or tootsie and right she's right because he's like flirting with some girls yeah and they're like what yeah. a beach and he's like i wouldn't be able to tell yeah exactly and you even see that I, I don't know if they if they did this on purpose or whatever but they talk about oh you know the the tootsies are um they have narrower noses and, and lighter skin and the Hutus are darker, but like when you show like the the different characters of the movie are played by different people, and there's no rhyme or reason. Right, right. It's fascinating, and then like I said, to a, to a depressing point. So as far yeah. as the events in the movie, and I even kind of lose track of <laughs> which is which as far as the Hutu or the Tutsi. Like I like which is Don Cheadle's character running the hotel. He's a Hutu. He's a Hutu. He's Hutu. So the Hutu yeah. are the higher up ones, and the Tutsi are the peasants? No, the Tutsi, no, the, oh, the Tutsi the are the higher up ones, the Hutu are the peasants. Okay. But then with this conflict, there's this, there's the flip, because now that they are independent and they're trying to do this majority rule, well, now the Hutu are the, they're the majority. Gotcha. And so they're basically like trying to, you know, pay back the Tutsis for this. It's like the French Revolution then. Yeah. Kind of. With like the lower caste kind of rising up. I mean, and that's kind of fitting because the Belgians and the French are like the two European powers that are the most, you know, have their hands in this region or in, in this country, at least, which they even talk about, you know, that they're constantly talking about the, the hotel is owned by a, a Belgian company. And they talk about how the, uh, the Hutu rebels are being funded by the French, which is uh, kind of controversial, I guess, the, the fact that 
like when we when they show in the movie like all the europeans get rescued like all the foreigners get pulled out but they don't take any refugees or anything no one actually from rwanda gets to leave when the french did that they rescued foreigners but they also rescued a bunch of like hardliner agitators from the government that were like directly responsible for a lot of the genocide and then also left a bunch of like supplies and stuff for the hutu militias but yeah so even even as recent as 1994 european powers were funding and supplying these uh militia right. groups that were these genocides and then i think what i kind of maybe missed in the movie is the extent to which there was violence coming from both sides so yeah so yes. the movie takes place with it's basically the hutus taking out the tutsis in the spring of 94 but like in october right. 93 the tutsis assassinated the new hutu president of burundi right. and yep. so i guess ultimately what what gave the was it just the numbers? What gave the Hutu the final advantage where they were actually in a position where they could dominate the Tutsi in Rwanda? Was it just the sheer numbers game? It was a numbers thing. Okay. Um, but eventually the, the Tutsi did end up like they're when they crossed the front lines at the end and they they're you know, the, they show that there's like all those guys getting ready to push in the city. Those are all Tutsis. So they ended up winning. They ended up becoming the I think they ended up winning the, the war. Oh, so dis- so despite the Rwandan genocide taking out mostly Tutsis, the Tutsis actually end up winning. Yeah, because they were yeah because Paul Kagame is he's the uh, the RPF leader. So that that group that ends up taking uh, Kigali at the end of the movie, he's he's the one who's leading them, and then he became the, the they called the vice president, but he basically was the one with all of the power. That basically the whole reason that Cheadle got to live was because he was Hutu and the Hutus that were killing everybody were like patient with him because he was one of them. Right. If right. it was Tutsi, they would have taken yeah. him out long before. Right. Yep. But as you see in the movie, that doesn't really matter because as soon as they find out that his wife is Tutsi, then they say, oh, well, even though you're a Hutu, you're a traitor. Mm. You're just as bad. And they obviously don't actually care about the difference because you see the army come up and he says, well, I'm going to give me the names of all the Tutsis that are in your hotel. And he says, no. He says, well, if you don't, then I'm just going to kill everybody. Right. And so they basically give him like an old list or, yeah, they basically kind of... And honestly, so in a lot of ways, and I don't know if I really thought about it to the extent until just now, although it should be kind of obvious, there's a lot of uh, Schindler's list here in that yes. he, he is keeping yes. in his hotel Tutsis safe that would otherwise have right. been killed by the Hutu. Right. And even to the point where he's like kind of having his staff lie or saying they're part of his staff or... Or giving yep. giving the Hutu army false information about who's at the hotel, yep. so they don't. Well, he he gives them a he gives them a list that's all it's all like European names. It's all the white people that were staying there. And the guy says, "This isn't this isn't right. There's no Europeans here." He said, "Well, that was the last list that we took. We stopped keeping Records, track after." Right, right. And then he took he took all the numbers off the doors so that you know it wouldn't yes. show you know who's where. And you know, and just like in Schindler's list, he's. Every time the the army shows up, he's giving all the guys beer. He's like talking to them like like they're friends. Right, trying to schmooze them. Yep, giving the guy uh, the general scotch and everything. And then he even is like basically kind of like doing a like false information. He's talking, hey, yeah, I overheard a, an American general, you know, talking to somebody about how they're they're watching everything with spies and satellites and. You know, so be careful of what you're doing because, you know, the Americans are watching and mm. even at the end, he's like tells them like, oh, yeah, you know, you're on a I heard the Americans say that you're on a list for war crimes. So you have to help me out so that I can basically testify on your behalf once this is all over that you weren't part of the doing all the massacres because you're the general. You're in charge. Right. And I, at the end of the day, ultimately, the reason this I think is just was so impactful for me is I just have always had I don't know, I get so 
the idea of this senseless death on a scale where you're killing men, women, and children indiscriminately because they are on the other side of a line you made up. Yes. And I just, the loss of life is so pointless. It's, again, it always comes back to what I talk about. You know, World War II, you could say it's justified. World War One wasn't. Yep. So the same thing here. This killing is just so unwarranted and the brutality with which it's done and not treating people like people and just you're you're getting rid of them as if they're vermin and I, my skin just crawls and i just can't handle it and this is like just another of like countless examples throughout history oh, right it's been going on for thousands of years well yeah. and specifically and they show it at the beginning of the movie just like when you talk about you know somewhere like nazi germany or anywhere else where extremists are starting to do extremist stuff and, you know, people say, hey, you know, like uh, he's he's driving with with his with his buddy, Don Cheeto's character driving with his uh, with Dubé um, in the van. And uh, Dubé's like, hey, man, these guys are talking some pretty scary stuff, talking about how we need to eliminate all the uh, Tutsis and, and basically have a, a race war and genocide. And Don Cheadle says, those guys are, they're all fools. They don't know what they're talking about. They're so extreme, you know, that they're not going to get any support. Their time will soon be over. Don't worry about it. And then what happens? Oh, no, actually, that message resonates with a bunch of people. And they use this anger and the hatred, basically take advantage of this anger and hatred for the Tutsis that people have harbored since the colonial days and use it to start a race war, just like in, you see in Nazi Germany with them doing the same thing to the Jews. And it's one of those things where like that type of rhetoric is harmful and can lead to very bad things. And it's exact lesson I would hope that we would all get from this. It's this idea of othering people. Put basically yes. saying saying, oh, this group is different from you and dangerous to you. And that's why it's so I think important to recognize that kind of language. And because we see it today in the United States with you see it in a lot of places well no right i mean yes we see the united states but i mean it's just nationalistic and racial language in general it can it can lead to this kind of stuff if it's unchecked right yeah the nationalistic stuff anything where it's focusing on our group is better or more worthy of continued existence and this other group is out to get us if we don't stop it then so you say, look at like the war on terror. It's happening. It happens on both sides in the sense that if you convince Islamic extremists that the West is out to get them, that's othering, and it yes. causes them to perform these acts of terror. But then conversely, when this is kind of more something that was kind of big ten years ago, but you would get the people then in the United States who are then convinced that all Muslims are terrorists, and we just need to turn that all that sand into glass and get rid of all of them. That's evil yeah. also, and it's that same othering that you're seeing that causes this kind of genocide here today. Or again, when I was talking about today's political United States climate, again, I feel like you get to where you see the rhetoric from the right kind of talking about that liberal is this buzzword, and that like liberals are the new group that is just to be disregarded and minimalized and is out to get you. But at the same time, then the extreme left, especially in like, like places like Twitter, will kind of talk about maybe that othering of the extreme right. And anybody who doesn't yes. have perfect PC language is the enemy that needs to be gotten rid right. of. And so just anybody who's yeah. using that kind of divisive language and not willing to openly engage in good faith conversations just really needs to 
give you pause when you think about what they're saying. You can disagree with someone and not consider them the other that is a threat to your continued existence. Right. Well, not realizing there aren't. (laughs) It's it's tricky, though, too, because you also want to you do, I guess, want to otherize the agitators themselves while recognizing the group writ large is not the threat. Yes. You know what I'm saying? If you're talking about Hitler, you do want to recognize him. Okay, let's, we do want to otherize him. It's like basically those who are seeking to otherize this kind of need to be otherized themselves. It's kind of like, right. I always think back to, you know, uh, I think it was, you know, Aristotle talked about, you know, moderation in all things. And my joke was always, well, that takes an excessive amount of moderation. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I guess there's kind of inherent contradictions, I guess, involved with all of this. So all that is to say, within the movie itself, so it focuses on Don Shields' character running this hotel and just the atrocities they're witnessing and things kind of go from a, basically he's running a normal hotel with lots of European tourists and expats that are just kind of, it's a nice place until this violence kind of comes on their doorstep and they go from running this resort essentially to now it's a war zone to now there's a genocide to now our hotel is a place for refugees and all based on a true story. And it's just this heartbreaking experience. Yep. And then, well, and then uh, one of the other elements in this movie is the Europe and the United States, their complete unwillingness to intervene at all, basically. So Nick Nolte plays a, he's the, the UN um, commander of the UN forces there. And uh, basically they, they think that the Europeans are going to come rescue them. And the Europeans do send a rescue force, but only to rescue the Europeans. And then they leave. And then they even show in the movie, they're, they're listening to the uh, a press conference. They don't show it. So I don't know who it is that's talking, but someone from the Clinton administration is talking about, oh yeah, we, we know there are acts of genocide but we wouldn't consider it a genocide. And so the journalist on the other end says, well, how many acts of genocide does it take to constitute a genocide? And then, you know, don't you guys know what's going on there? And he says, well, you know, we, you know, we don't know the full scope of the situation, and which is all a lie. Um, actually, there was a bunch of documents that got declassified in the early 2000s showing that they knew before the genocide even got to the worst that it was, they knew exactly what was happening, and there were directions given to say, you know, to always preface the word genocide with acts of, so that you say acts of genocide to kind of try and lessen what was going on. They said, oh, well, yeah, it's, you know, once it all started to come out, oh, actually, um, a million people died in Rwanda. They said, oh, well, we never knew the extent of the killing that was going on. They knew. They for sure knew. Wow. It, it was documented. But essentially, they didn't want to intervene for two big reasons. The first one was Rwanda just strategically didn't mean that much to the United States. We don't benefit from it. Right. They're, they don't have resources. It's not a strategic location. They, what, are we, what do we gain from intervening? Whereas when it's the Middle East, we don't hesitate because of oil. Right. I mean, and I would think that stopping, stopping a million people from being hacked to death with machetes, I would think would be maybe a reason for intervention. But again, I'm, I'm not a policymaker. So right. whatever, take, take that yeah. as you will. But, um, and then the other reason was, um, which I think Nick Nolte says in the movie is that they didn't want a repeat of um, Somalia in 1993. Oh, is that the Black Hawk Down stuff? Yeah. After the, you know, the Battle of Mogadishu, a bunch of Americans died. They ended up having to leave anyway. And it was kind of a, a failed UN peacekeeping mission or not really. It was a an attempt at a 
peacemaking that failed and just made everything worse. So they they didn't want a repeat of Somalia '93. So they said we're not we're not about to start intervening in these conflicts in Africa anymore. So Rwanda, they're on their own. The line in the film that always registered the strongest with me is Joaquin Phoenix as a journalist over there, who as he's getting rescued and learns that there's basically no help coming for this for these people but he's going to get out okay he just says i'm so ashamed and i think yeah. his delivery on that line too it like, he just sells it in a way that you're like yeah yeah yep. yeah me too bud my the the moment that had that impact which that that is a, a super emotional moment but when nick nolte is talking to um don Cheadle and he said he says we think you're dirt we think you don't matter Mm. The West, the power, nobody cares about you. He says, you're not even an N-word. You're African. Oh, wow. Which, yeah. like, holy shit. Right. And that's, yeah, like I said, yeah, just the, the issues at play. And then again, that's kind of, I think that is kind of a frustration that I've heard expressed is, okay, yes, you know, you can say we don't have an obligation to intervene at the expense of American dollars and lives. But it's just the fact that that seems so hypocritical when if it's in our economic interest, then all of a sudden we are willing to risk lives to help. Right. Help in the sense that it helps us economically down the line. So we'll, we'll let a thousand American soldiers die if it makes corporations richer in the future. But if it's a place like Rwanda, where one, we'd probably have a less of a hard time because we have a lot of international support to kind of save these people that we're like, right. like you said, we're not interested because like you right. said, but, we, it, we, you know, yeah. and yeah, I, I can understand the argument of, well, you know, the United States doesn't necessarily have to be the, the policeman of the world. So if it doesn't affect Americans, then who cares? But then when you, you know, when you do intervene or you, you know, show a, a propensity to, to intervene when it benefits you, but not when it doesn't, then that's, I think, where it's it gets slimy and gross. And what I've always thought, though, too, is so, yes, that would be the role of an entity like the U.N., which the U.S. refuses to empower. Right. And is also kind of at certain times hamstrung because in order for anything to get done there, basically the United States and I, who, who is, is it oh, the United the States, four, Great Britain, whatever. China, China, Russia and France, I think all basically have to agree, have to align and agree. And while, yes, in 1945, that may have been, you know, an easy thing to do or something that was even possible I think now it. I don't think that will. I don't think it's possible. But man, who's who's saying no to stopping a genocide? I guess I don't see what's the, what's the no here, or is it just they didn't have the resources? Well, it's also so once you once you the UN says okay, we're going to intervene. Well, the UN is in its own country. Somebody has right. to pony up the money, right. the resources, the supplies, the soldiers who are going to have to go there and actually do the fighting. Right. So that's where. You know, it, it, it turns into instead of everyone can agree. Yes, that's bad. Somebody should stop that. Well, why am I the one who has to right. pony up the guy? What you know, what's in it for me then? Oh, they don't have any resources. Yeah, I don't I don't think uh, we're probably going to get involved. Wow. I don't I, I, I don't have a good answer. Then you're right. It's just a horrible, horrible situation. And but again, I definitely wanted to put this movie on the list to kind of highlight the fact that these kinds of things are, are going on and we're in. Uh, the movie itself is a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was nominated for three Oscars for Don Cheadle for Best yes. Actor. His his wife is played by Sophie Okonedo, who is nominated for Supporting Actress, and then Best Original Screenplay nomination. And it is actually 
one of the higher ones on our whole list here on the IMDb Top 250. It's number 224 all time. So this is a movie you need to check out. Yeah, that it for sure is. A, this is a this is a must watch. And I would almost say movie vegetable, not because it's like not engaging or it's boring or slow or anything like you will be engaged. But it's just it is so hard to watch because it's such a tough experience. Yeah. Great movie. Worth the watch. Have the, have the tissues handy, I guess, so to speak, or literally. So, yes, next week is staying about the same time period, but we go up to the Balkans and deal with the Bosnian conflict in 2001's No Man's Land.